I'm amazed that I'm alive. I'm amazed that after winding up homeless and penniless as a convicted felon, after being completely insane, I mean, I already had challenges psychologically in terms of anxiety and depression and panic disorder, but you smoke enough crack or shoot enough coke or go without eating and without sleeping for enough days, psychosis set in to such a degree that when I stopped, when I finally, finally surrendered and raised my hand and joined the winning team, it took, took about 18 months, sober I'm talking about, it took about 18 months for the psychosis to begin to subside. I still saw shadow people. I still thought, you know, someone was coming after me. Um, I still thought people were coming into whatever place I was living in in the middle of the night and poisoning the food that was in the refrigerator. I was completely fucking insane. Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and could not be more excited about today's episode. A little look into Lindsay's brain. When I first decided to start a podcast, I had a vision board, a dream board, if you will, of all the guests that I would absolutely fangirl over and love to have on the show one day. Today's guest, Khalil, was at the top of that list. I read his book, I Forgot to Die, a handful of years ago, and it completely changed the way I approached addiction, the treatment of addiction, and most importantly, the treatment of those experiencing addiction. We talk all about shame. We talk about childhood trauma. We talk about what life would be like if we dropped the story that justifies all of our actions. Who are you if you stop justifying by telling that story to everyone? You're just another human existing on this planet. Khalil shares so openly, so vulnerably, so authentically that you will be hanging on his every word this episode. Also, if you're in Austin, be sure to hang out and stop by Sun Life Organics, Khalil's delicious, wonderful, incredible juice bar, and grab one of his many books while you're sitting there eating a delicious acai bowl. As always, I was sipping on some delicious element, LMNT, my favorite hydration drink, while I was interviewing Khalil today. And very, very exciting news, grapefruit flavor is coming back. Yep, one week. You guys have one more week to wait for my favorite flavor to drop again from Element and be sure to get your hands on it because for whatever reason, they're making it a limited time flavor yet again. So be sure to stock up. I will add that link to the show notes when it is available. But until then, if you hit the link that's currently there, Lens and Element, you can get your hands on a free sample pack and all you pay for is shipping. Until next week, enjoy the show. Welcome back to Get Psyched, everyone. I'm so excited about this show. I know I say that every week, but I really, really am excited about this one. I was just telling Khalil before the show, I read his book years and years ago before the podcast was even a thing and kind of like, I don't want to say put it on a vision board because I didn't have one, but it just kind of lodged in my brain that you would be such a cool podcast guest to have. And now call it luck of the draw or manifestation or whatever you want to call it. I'm so excited to have you here on the mic today. 
Yeah, I'm excited to be here. And um, it's interesting that I am here because I made a I made a decision a while back um, to really learn to say no. Um, Rick Rubin, who is a music guy, but he's also just a seeker. I mean, he's been meditating every day, twice a day since he was 14 years old. I think he's 59 now. Uh, most people know him for, I don't know, the producer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers or the producer of Adele or the producer of, he, he has a really broad spectrum of artists that he's worked with from like super hardcore heavy metal to rap to, you know, um, to whatever. Um, but he told me, or he taught me rather, he, he taught me and showed me um, that no is one of the most powerful words and tools that you could, you could ever acquire. And it sounds so simple and yet it's so difficult, uh, especially for somebody like me who has a tendency to be a people pleaser and, um, and not just a people pleaser because I did pick up some amazing qualities from my mom, but also people pleaser because I'm super fucking insecure and I want people to like me. So I tend to say yes to a lot of things that end up taking a lot of my time and kind of diminishing the quality of my, of my life. And so um, I have one of those weird stories, which I know we're going to get into, you know, the Cinderella story, the rags to riches, the park bench to park Avenue, whatever you want to call it. So I get, I get hit up. I don't want to say daily because that's a bit of an exaggeration, but almost daily to be on people's podcast. And I've just, I've learned to say no. Um, and, and I try not to be a scumbag. I try not to like click on their thing and look at who they are, you know, cause there is a tendency to do that. Um, but Cal Callahan, who is a dear friend of mine and, um, a, a, a mentor, um, in many regards, um, he, he didn't ask me, he just told me, you know, basically, <laughs> we like, gotta love Cal. Yeah. Like you're going to you're going to be on Lindsay's podcast. How do you want me to connect you? And um, I didn't even think about it. I'm just like, yeah, let, let's, let's do it. Um, and so here we are. And I'm super grateful to be here. Oh my gosh. Well, first off, thank you because uh, to you and to Cal, Cal's been on the show and um, we actually did a whole show on conscious parenting and I'm so far from a parent. I've got wow. a great dog. But it was so cool to see, I mean, Cal and Peyton are just incredible humans, but the way that they are parenting their kids and having open dialogue, not telling them this is how it is, but ex letting them explore and then processing, hey, what is that like for you? Yeah, like it's, it, it's mind blowing and it puts a lump in my throat. I mean, first of all, they couldn't be any cuter. I mean, like, oh my God. I mean, no. I don't mean cute, like puppy cute. I mean, hot, like <laughs> he is ridiculously stunning and fit. Like he's one of those guys that's so fit, like his sides have abs. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not just, have you seen him without a shirt on? Yeah. It's bananas. Like he doesn't just have, he has like a 12 pack in the middle and then he has like eight packs on the side. Like, I don't even know what that is. Like, it's like, uh, maybe he's Aquaman. They're gills. They're like his. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> and then she is, uh, Peyton is a goddess pixie, um, just hot, amazing. Like when I first met her, I thought that she was his daughter because she has a very young nature about her. She looks very young. Um, she's very fit. 
Um, and we were sitting in his, uh, what does he call it? He has like this den where all these bros hang out. Yeah. And we were, we were in his den, man cave, whatever. And she walked in and she saw the smoothies and she was like, smoothies. And I have <laughs> one. And I'm like, you can have the whole cooler you based on whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, I love them. And then the way that they parent, it's, it's very, it's, it's unusual. Some, some would say maybe controversial, um, but it puts a lump in my throat. I mean, I, I absolutely love them and I watch them parent and it, it, it's so inspiring. I'm not a parent, but I still think someday I will be. Hey, and I think that you, I don't want to put uh, words in your mouth or a reality out there, but I think that with the work that you are putting out into the world, it is creating that safe landing or that nurturing or that kind of more parental thing. Um, you mentioned earlier that we would talk about, you know, kind of where you came from, what the story is. And for my listeners that are not familiar, um, I know it's hard to say, can you put that in a nutshell for us? But yeah. um, what, what kind of brought you to where you are right now? Yeah, that's a, it's a loaded question. I, I wrote a couple of books on that subject. <laughs> yeah. uh, one, of, one of them is called I Forgot to Die. So that might give you a little bit of a, a peek into what, what my upbringing, what my life was like. Um, but in a nutshell, I was born in a, in a small rural town in, in uh, Ohio. Um, I, both of my parents were immigrants. My mother came to the United States from Poland. Um, my father came from Palestine, so they both spoke different languages. Um, my mother was born a Jew, but raised a Catholic. My father was born a Muslim, but was an atheist his whole life and is still an atheist. Um, they, my mom was like in a work camp and like suffered through all kinds of horrible, horrible shit. Some of it I, I don't even know about because she was very emotionally shut down and not able to express herself. And, and, you know, one can only imagine what happened to young women during World War II, especially when they were put into slave labor camps. So um, she made a couple of references here and there, nothing too descriptive, but enough to let me know, like this woman suffered beyond, I think most people's wildest imaginations. And my father, regardless, regardless of what I think or what anybody thinks of, you know, does, does Palestine belong to Israel and should it be Israel? I want to, I just want to set all of that aside for a moment because it, it's, it's strange for me to be half Muslim and half Jewish, half Polish, half Palestinian. Um, my opinion changes. And when I talk to certain people, I believe it's one way. When I talk to other people, I believe it's another way. One thing I've learned at, at, at the ripe old age of 52 is that there are, there are often multiple truths. There's not just one truth. There's multiple truths. So my father, when he was 12 years old, was living on a, um, an olive orchard property. And that was their reality. His, his father had just retired from the British Postal Service. And um, his dream was to own an olive orchard. So he, owned an, he bought an olive orchard and was raising olive trees. And one day they heard explosions going off and gunfire and and, um, and noises that scared the shit out of them. So they ran up into the hills and, and hid for three days. And when they came back down, there were soldiers there from the United Nations that just said like, this isn't your land anymore. He was 12 years old. Jeez. And I, I cannot imagine, you know, and it doesn't matter. Well, 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 that was, 
you know, the Jews land, you know, 3000 years ago, whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, where, where you're from California and where I lived for 29 years, um, at 24 years old, I, I, I don't have an education, but at 24 years old, I was up in Monterey, California at the Fisherman's Wharf. And I saw this thing that was talking about how that used to be one of the capitals of Mexico. And I was just like, wait, what? And I went over and I asked the person working there, I'm like, wait, this was Mexico? And they're like, yeah, this was one of the capitals of Mexico. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So, you know, when people say to me, like, well, it doesn't matter, you know, Palestine belonged to the, you know, to the Jews anyway. Okay, but then so does, does California belong to the Mexicans? Right. Or, or does California belong to the Native Americans? There's lots of shit that has gone down and lots of shit that has happened. It doesn't take away from the fact that my father and his family becoming refugees when he was 12 years old and living in fucking tents and eventually being taken in by Jordan and he became a Jordanian citizen. My point is they both went through absolute hell. They went through absolute hell. My grandfather, from what I understand, was was beyond violent. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was the type of person that when he got angry, he would beat up the entire family. He wouldn't just hit whoever he was punishing. He would beat up everyone to within an inch of their life. So my dad was shattered and broken. Um, My dad left home when he was 19. He left behind three kids and he went to Germany and he made a bunch of money. And then he thought he was going to go back and be the hero and rescue his wife and three kids. And when he went back after being gone for five years, he found his wife with a new child from his brother who had married her. Oh my gosh. So my dad's heart was shattered. My dad's heart was broken. And um, so he was already, uh, let me shut this door real quick, sorry. They're installing some Sonos speakers at my house. So it might be <laughs> for a moment. Um, it's all good. This is what happens when we go live. My father, my father, um, you know, already because his dad was so violent and so misogynistic and just such a horrible human being, my dad was already kind of, you know, set to be that way just because a child can only imitate its environment. But if you take the violence and you take being kicked out of your own land at 12 years old and having to go live in a tent. Um, and then you put, you, you sprinkle in the, his own brother married his wife and had a kid with her, which by the way, that's sort of like a tradition in that culture. If someone, if someone's husband dies, it's, uh, it's honorable for the brother or one of the brothers to then marry that woman and then take care of her. So my uncle wasn't like an evil person. He was doing the right thing. Unfortunately, my dad came back and they didn't think he was coming back. And so um, my childhood was fucked. (laughs) How about that? My childhood was just, it was violent. Um, It was weird, you know, having, having parents that didn't speak English that well and um, living in this like upper middle-class neighborhood with the right type of house and the right type of cars, but with the violence and unfortunately, not just sexual abuse, but incest, uh, neglect, um, watching my mother get beaten on a regular basis. Like my childhood was fucked. I, I, I had a really, I had a really, really 
tough childhood. And I'm, and I'm still to this day, you know, Wednesday I was working with my healer, Kimmy. I found this amazing healer out here named Kimmy. And um, just randomly in the process of doing one of these sessions with her, we stumbled upon the 12 year old me. Mm. And we began, she started asking questions about what was going on when you were 12 years old. And we started to like unpack that. And I'm laying on her table. I literally like put my hands on my face because I was embarrassed because I was crying and I was fighting really hard not to like lose my shit because that pain in, in, in many regards is still in there somewhere. You totally. know, they say the issues are in the tissues, which is why things like yoga is so good for us. And breath work is so good for us because we can begin to loosen some of that stuff up. But catharsis ain't fun. <laughs> yeah. As you know, <laughs> catharsis ain't fun. So yeah, really, really challenging childhood, drugs and alcohol at an early age, um, just as a as a coping mechanism. And right. um, and thank God for drugs and alcohol. Thank God, because I would have killed myself without them. So what started out as like smoking a little, you know, puff of a joint with the older kids in the neighborhood when I was 11 and 12 years old eventually became habitual and the, you know, shotgunning a beer to try to impress the, you know, 14, 15 year old girls when I was 10 or 11 or 12, eventually became blackout drinking. So mm -hmm. alcoholism and addiction um, started out at a very early age for me, as well as unfortunately sexuality, because the sexual abuse and the incest that I went through then just morphed into, you know, I lost my virginity when I was 12. Um, and when I think about that again, it's like, I'm fucking horrified when I think about that. At the time, like I was 12 years old, my neighbor was 15. I lied and told her I was 14. Um, I was being a crafty little kid and, and a horny little kid going through puberty. So I understand it. But like, when I think about my friends, kids now, that are that age i'm just like you've got to be kidding me like i can't even believe that's what was going on and that's what was going on so brutal fucking life um a lot of bad shit and um the fact that i survived it all was a miracle and and one of the coping mechanisms was very much drugs and alcohol was acting out sexually shoplifting um video games, you know, just watching TV all day, all night, just anything to like not feel me. And, and right at that time was um, like 12 and a half turning 13 was when my panic and anxiety attacks started. Um, and I suffered from about 12 till I was about 19. I suffered from severe panic anxiety disorder as well as depression and all that other shit. I mean, so, naturally, brutal. right? Like yeah. the systems responding, something I love that you said was, um, it reminds me a lot of Gabor Mate's work is that the drugs and alcohol were not the problem. They were the attempt to solve the problem. Right. And, um, I had another friend on the show who got sober when she was, really oh. she was, I want to say she was like 15, 16. Um, but you know, had been using opiates and, and all sorts of other drugs before that. And she was like, thank God for them. Without them, I wouldn't be here because yeah, I had, I was a kid, right. Same with you. Yeah. Right. 
we're, you're experiencing these things that sound like a manifestation of how your parents saw the world, right? Yeah. Short, brutish hell yeah. and created that reality for a kid that's just kind of a sponge, right? Taking all of that on. Yes. So the panic and anxiety and depression was a symptom to all of these things. Yeah. Um, well, so when I was on the table with Kimmy, she's like intuitive. So she was saying, you're, you have to talk to your 12 year old self. He wants to be seen, but what does he want to be heard? What, like, what, what does he want you to say? Mm-hmm. And I'm like laying there and I'm having all these flashes and all these flashes. And I was like, oh my God, he wants to know if he's crazy because I didn't know what a panic attack was. I didn't know what any of that shit was. I literally was like, just, I don't know. I think I was like playing um, like Pac-Man or something. And all of a sudden it just like felt like I fell off the back of my chair, but I didn't actually fall off the back of the chair. I didn't fall at all. But that feeling of like, <laughs> you know, but intensified times a hundred and it kept going and it kept going. And then all of a sudden I could hear my heart racing. And then all of a sudden it, it felt like I couldn't breathe. And I thought I was having a heart attack. And so the 12 year old up until I was 19, I literally concealed the fact that I thought I was completely insane. And at some point somebody was going to find out and they were going to put me into like a rubber room in a fucking straight jacket. It was horrible. So and so horrible that here I am at 52 years old, just now unpacking some of that stuff. Yeah. So when you got that, that message from the 12 year old, like, I just want to know I'm not crazy. What was the next step? How did you, how did you, well, that, that's when I was like gripping to not lose my shit sobbing. Like I was crying, but I was like covering my face. Cause I, Kimmy's very pretty. (laughs) I think I'm embarrassed to cry in front of anybody, but she's like such a goddess that like, I don't want to look ugly. So I was covering my face. Um, But I was able to say like, no, 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 no. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. You had a lot of trauma, the sexual abuse that went on and the violence that went on and you weren't able to process it as a child. I was literally talking to myself, to my 12 year old self and saying, all of that suppressed fear now that you're 12 and you're able to leave and go off on your own and you're able to explore and you know go you know go to the mall on your own or go wherever on your own now you finally feel safe enough to allow those feelings to come up they're just coming up too fast there's so much pain and anxiety in there that it's coming up too fast now had i had i known how to do box breathing probably would have been okay. Had I know how to do like acupressure points. I know your listeners can't see me, but like pushing on that part in between my thumb and my forefinger, if I'm on a plane and I start to feel like a panic attack coming on, I could literally just push on that point there or uh, four fingers down from my wrist. There's another great point right in here where if you just apply intense pressure I don't know why. And, and by the way, this could all be placebo. <laughs> so hey, but it works if it, it works. works. And, and, you know, had I had access to things like ashwagandha, had I had access to, um, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff, holy basil and, and um, all kinds of different things that I could have dealt with, you know, coped with it better. I didn't. So 
alcohol worked great. Right. And at and 12, you don't know about holy basil. You don't know about thoughts breathing. No. I didn't know anything. I didn't no. know anything. Yeah. Um, one thing you said in your book that actually, when it was gifted to me, um, my friend said, there's a, there's a line in this book that sticks with me. And after you read it, I want you to tell me if you can guess what line it was. And it was, I believe it was either like a sponsor or a coach at the time asked you, who would you be without the story? story. Yeah. Who would you be if you dropped your story? Yeah. That was, that was definitely one of the top five most pivotal moments in my life because I didn't realize that all of the chatter in my head, the 80,000 thoughts, 60 to 90,000 thoughts I'm having a day, um, 85 to 90% of which are negative. Mm-hmm. This is you know, not conjecture. This is actual study done by some very prominent universities. Uh, first of all, I was creating that story and I was repeating that story. And I assumed that that story was reality because in a very real sense, it was reality, right? If you're constantly saying to yourself, the world is an unsafe place, you're a piece of shit, you don't fit in, everybody's better than you, everybody's worse than you, you're never gonna get this, you're never gonna be able to afford that. If you, if you continue to tell yourself that, and remember, this is all subconscious, it's not like I'm keeping track of the 80,000 thoughts a day, but there was just all of this noise inside my head you know, oh, well, I was abandoned. And, and you know, from reading the book, the reality was I wasn't really abandoned by those girlfriends. Um, those girlfriends escaped and they got away from a monster because there were characteristics of, of my father. And it wasn't just characteristics of my father. It was characteristics of the men who I saw in movies growing up that I idolized, which when I look back now at some of those movies, I'm fucking horrified. I'm horrified at the, at the way that men behaved in movies. And, you know, as a, as a stark example, we can go back to movies in the, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where if you and I were a couple and you started to cry and get very upset about something, I would say, you're being hysterical, which is a very sexist remark, right? It's a derogatory term that is 99% of the time aimed at women. Mm-hmm. And, and, and w- I don't know if you've watched movies from back then. What would I do when you became hysterical? What was a common thing that men did to women in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? Hit them. Slap them. That was like the men who we were supposed to look up to and worship, like the the big, big movie stars of that time. If you watch even like, I don't know if it's Gone with the Wind or if you watch Casablanca, mm-hmm. right? The beautiful starlet is under duress, which was considered hysterical at that time. And the man would <laughs> slap her out of it. I grew up watching that shit. Right. And, and, you know, I could go on and on and on about, um, I, I rewatched with my girlfriend, um, the other day, Purple Rain, because that was one of my favorite movies when I was, I think I was 11 or 12 when that came out. I, I, I probably walked to Southwick Mall 
and saw that movie. Remember, movies were like 50 cents or you know, right. afternoon and like a dollar at night. Um, and I don't mean you remember, you're, you know, a, a kid, but at, at that time, I probably saw Purple Rain, literally probably saw Purple Rain 30 times, 40 times. When I rewatched it with my girlfriend, and remember, Prince was God, you know, Prince was like, oh yeah. my God. When I watched the way that they treated women in that movie, I felt so sick to my stomach. Mm. And that's, that's how women were treated back then. So, you know, men, men like in, are inherently aggressive and can be violent. And, you know, they've got, they've got testosterone pumping through their veins. And because of evolution, that's kind of like the way that we're wired. Um, we also, I think as a species are designed to go out and procreate with as many members of the opposite sex as possible. Um, that's kind of like how we're set up as animals, but we're not all animals. We also have these things called souls right. and we're also living in modern times. Now we're living in society and there's rules and whatever. And I think men in general struggle because of those things, having a bunch of testosterone pumping through your veins as a man creates a lot of challenges. Um, and it's hard. I think it's hard for women to understand that. And I'm not excusing men's behaviors at all. I think men are fucking pigs for the most part. Um, and men have a long way to go. And as much as I disagreed with many parts of the Me Too movement, I'm glad it happened because men needed to wake the fuck up. Men needed to be slapped across the face. Men needed to be held accountable. You know, when I was a little boy and I watched my mom waiting tables and I saw men grabbing her ass or making lascivious remarks to her, um, you feel so helpless as a child watching, but that was normal back then mm. in the seventies. That's how women were treated back then. So I'm grateful that we're continuing to evolve and we're coming out of that. I'm so grateful that women are rising up and claiming their power, but men had a lot of fucking help from Hollywood learning and watching how to act like a complete piece of shit, like, like horrible horrible people. Nine and a half weeks was one of my favorite movies ever. I worship Mickey work. Go back and watch that movie and watch how he treats Kim Basinger in that movie. It's fucking disgusting. So, right. yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent there. Um, horrible, horrible, horrible childhood, lots of pain and um, turned into, you know, alcoholism, drug addiction, um, eventually, and I'm paraphrasing, eventually I did wind up homeless. Um, I wound up penniless and homeless. I am a high school dropout. I'm a convicted felon and I still can't spell or type because when I got held back for the second time in sixth grade, I just shut down. I shut down completely. Um, I stopped learning when I was in sixth grade. So I, on a regular basis, if I'm speaking with the executives who run my company, the women who run my company, my, my company's run all by women. 90% um, of my corporate staff are women. 85%, um, 90% of management are women and 90% of the employees are women. So I learned to, I learned that I didn't know how to run a business and I learned to get the fuck out of the way and let women <laughs> do their magic and women do a much better job of running shit than men do. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, 
You know what, Lindsay? It, it's 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 bizarre that I'm sitting here in this fancy office. I know you can't really see around. I wish I could show you all the things on the wall and like the New York Times article and all this stuff. I'm amazed that I'm alive. I'm amazed that um, that after winding up homeless and and penniless as a convicted fan, uh, felon, after being completely insane. I mean, I already had challenges psychologically in terms of anxiety and, and depression and, and panic disorder, but you smoke enough crack or shoot enough coke or go without eating and without sleeping for enough days, psychosis set in to such a degree that when I stopped, when I finally, finally surrendered and raised my hand and joined the winning team, it, it, took, it took about 18 months sober I'm talking about. It took about 18 months for the psychosis to begin to subside. I still saw shadow people. I still thought, you know, someone was coming after me. Um, I still thought people were coming into whatever place I was living in in the middle of the night and poisoning the food that was in the refrigerator. I was completely fucking insane. Completely. And How in those times when you were having you're sober at this point, well over a year, right? People, people go to treatment for 28 days, right? And there's this almost like a bow is presented on them and they're given back to their family. And it's like your loved one, your child, your partner, whoever is sober. And that's not the case, right? Yeah. Maybe you're not on substances, drugs and alcohol or, you know, psychiatric medication, but there's so much more to it. So in those days, right, in that first year, two years of sobriety, when so many people, right, the messaging around you is, oh, you've kicked it, oh, you've done it, congratulations, and you're still experiencing the paranoid thoughts, right, yeah, the, the shadow people, how did you keep going? Um, <laughs> a lot of a lot of this type of praying. And I know, again, we're not on video, but like you can see my knuckles turning white because I'm holding my hands together so tightly. I prayed nonstop. I prayed when I woke up. I prayed when I was trying to go to bed at night. I prayed in the middle of the night when I wake up with these horrible nightmares. I had using dreams for years and years afterwards. Um, I went through some really nasty, gross shit on the streets. I know you read my book and I know you probably get what I'm making a reference to in terms of, you know, what, what was going on, um, yeah. when I was living in the streets, there's a lot that I kept out just because it was too graphic and it was too much. And, and, and Neil, that was helping to edit my book, he said, Hey man, this stuff is too polarizing. You, you, this is stuff you want to share, like with a sponsor or with a therapist, like, don't put it in your book because it's just going to get, it's, it's, it's okay to give a little bit. Like in the second book, I throw in this experience where I hadn't gone to the bathroom for a couple of weeks and I was just literally desperate. And I kept going and getting um, fleet enemas and trying to get what was ever lodged inside of me to come out. It wouldn't work. Um, and eventually just out of desperation, I literally took a pencil and shoved it up there to try to lock, you know, pull it out. And I, and it slipped and I ended, ended up puncturing my rectum and just bleeding out for like, I don't know how long, but it was horrible. And I put that in the book 
intentionally, I peppered that in because I wanted people to understand the power of the mind and the power of the ego to bypass experience, mm. right? When that happened, when, when my girlfriend eventually came home and they found me on the floor and there's blood, you know, coming out of my back end and there's blood all over the walls and they're begging me to go to treatment. My response, sincere response was, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just have to stop shooting it. I, if I can just go back to smoking it, I'll be fine. Like that's how powerful my ego's ability was to bypass experience. That's how powerful the ego is to make someone in that state um, think that things were okay. I thought that things were okay. But, but at the same time, how many people do we know that, that are in abusive relationships that think things are okay? How many, how many times, you know, does a woman say, well, it's not his fault. It's not his fault because that woman is terrified of being alone so much so that she's going to stay with some piece of shit guy that hits her. Like our minds can be steel traps and our egos will lie to us and lie to us and lie to us and tell us that we're okay. In, in the meantime, our entire lives are, are completely fucked and falling apart. How did I get through those times? I prayed a lot. I went to 12 step meetings every day. Um, which is not something I do anymore coming up on, on 19 years, but I went to 12 step meetings every day, many times, twice a day. Um, I surrounded myself with people that were sober with much more time than me. Um, I, I, I read, I developed a voracious appetite for spiritual literature. And I don't just mean like the Bible or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, but I mean, just anything like I, Every Sunday, I went to the Hare Krishna temple and I jumped around and danced with the Hare Krishnas and chanted Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram. I like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't need to. I didn't need to. Um, I just loved that there were people that were worshiping God so much that they had big smiles on their faces. And I went to the Self-Realization Fellowship a couple times a week. Um, it's a place that Paramahansa Yogananda created. Um, and you can get into it, go to the church and learn the Kriya breathe, Kriya yoga breathing techniques. I just went there to go into the little chapel that's on the pond there. And I would just sit still and listen to the sound of my breath. Um, and then I would go out and I would watch the swans gliding across the lake that they have there. And I found so much peace there. Um, I worked out every day. I went for a walk every day. I did a walking gratitude list. And a lot of this stuff I still do now. I'm not jumping around chanting Hare Krishna anymore, but I would. I mean, if I was in LA and you were like, hey, remember you said, I'd like to check that out. I would take you there on a Sunday and we would have the time of our life. <laughs> I, was, I, I sought God with all my heart and God made me new again. And God put a crown on my head, a crown of love. And that's why when you walk into any Sun Life Organics, you're going to see Psalm 103, one through five, because that's my story. And that's not, I'm not a Christian. I'm not anything. I'm not any religion. I don't claim to be any religion and I'm not a spiritual man. But in my desperate state, in the bottom of all bottoms, when I had nothing at all, when I reached out to God, my prayers were answered. And that doesn't mean that the cravings went away. That doesn't mean that the psychosis went away because it didn't. 
I still had a lot of challenges. You know, the first I was I was homeless. I mean, yes, I was living at Robbie's house and a sponsor, but I was still homeless. I was homeless. I don't think I got my own apartment until I was three and a half years sober. So a lot of challenges, but I put a lot of good stuff in and good stuff started to come out. And I started to eat as healthy as I could afford, which was not easy. And hung out at those 12-step meetings and read spiritual stuff and prayed. And when I say pray, Lindsay, please don't think I was doing some fancy special prayers that were 108 things or whatever. Like I literally was like, God, please be with me. God, please, God, please, 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 can you be with me right now? God, please, can you hold my hand? God, please hold my hand right now. We please just walk with me. I'm scared. Please, can you take away my fear? Please, can you be with me? And the more I did that, the better I felt. And it, it just, it became accumulative. It, it grew. Yeah. When you say, I'm not a spiritual man, I'm not a religious man. And I think mm-hmm. that that's a lot of things are a bit, you know, I worked in treatment for a long time. We were a okay. non-traditional program um, rooted in mindfulness and meditation. And I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many people came to the program after going to many, many 12 step based treatments and said, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm not a person of God. I can't give my life over to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found something, right. They found spirit. They found cosmos. They found the universe, whatever it is. And you saying, I'm not a spiritual man, not a religious man. Who mm-hmm. was that God you were talking to? Whatever created all of this, whatever, whatever energy that is, um, in the early days, I wholeheartedly believed that God was a woman. I mean, that was my jam. And I went as far as to, I went off to India for a month and I found this beautiful statue of Lakshmi. And um, I just, I prayed to, at that time, I was praying to what I believe to be a female God. Now, you know, that has evolved many different times and God has taken on many different incarnations in my life. I have, I have statues all over my house. I've got all the different beads I got. I don't know what I'm wearing today. What am I wearing today? It looks like a Jewish star with a cross underneath it. Um, this was Fred Siegel's necklace. And um, I always have a different necklace on with a different representation of a different religion. I think Lindsay, I think God is the space that's in between you and me right now. I think, I think that's God. Whatever, whatever is putting life into us, you can pray to the sun, you can pray to an image of a deity, um, you can pray to the cosmos. I don't think any of that matters. I just think that to have a relationship with whatever it is that created me is, <laughs> I don't know, it's like the only thing to me, it's the only thing there is. Like when I hold my cat, like, yes, her name is Krishna, but I don't think she's like Krishna of the Hari Krishnas, but (laughs) like when I hold my cat and my cat like purrs and I bring her close to my chest and I lay there and she just looks at me and I look back at her like, that's God. That's God. So I don't believe in a punitive God. I don't believe in, you know, the punishing, like you know, you're going to burn in hell if you don't say this or say that, or if you don't, I don't, I don't like that stuff. I don't like, I don't like that stuff. I don't like all that. Like God hates fags and like, fuck all that. I don't like God doesn't hate anyone. You know, God is God. And I don't know what God is. And I don't want to know what God is. I don't have any answers. 
I don't want to have the answers. I don't want to have the answers. <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like the people, it seems like the people who have the answers, according to them, that know the only truth, the one and only truth, those people seem to fuck the world up more than anybody. You know, those people are blowing themselves up and, and blowing up abortion clinics and, and condemning other people and like, I don't want to have any convictions about anything. I just want to keep learning and just keep enjoying this experience. Yeah. Have you read the book, Many Lives, Many Masters? Um, I started to, I have it, but uh, no, no. Should I? I I mean, I think it's just because I'm in the middle of it right now. And there's so Uh many moments that it's like just blowing my world apart. But um you know, one of the things that they say is that, or that's kind of the revelation of this psychiatrist and his, his client, um, is she's basically regressing into all of these past lives Mm. and with each past life, um, there's the in-between, which I love that, you know, that you said, God is what's in between us right now. Yeah. And she has this moment where he basically through hypnotherapy progresses her to the death of each of these past lives. And she'll watch herself kind of leave her body, have this objective, be able to look down and see what's happening. And then names what a lot of people with, you know, near death experiences name the, the bright light, the warmth, the welcome, these different moments. And there's this moment of in-between where she says there's, you can choose to return to your body or you choose to go towards this light, towards this knowing, towards this safety right? This warmth. I just keep saying warmth because that's what it feels like when I'm reading it. Okay. And you can, what she explains is that you go towards that safety, that light, when you have completed what it is that you were supposed to learn and supposed to complete. And if not, you return back to continue that lesson. Wow. And, you know, in the time. That makes sense. Right. So in the times where she does pass, right? Because she goes through so many of these past lives. Yeah. There's this moment where her voice completely changes and she almost starts channeling these guides, right? Who are the masters from each life. Okay. Okay. And so with each life, she's able to say, you know, in reviewing or looking back on what I experienced, this was the lesson, right? The lesson was to love without expectation, or to give without expecting to receive all of these different lessons. And it's so exactly what you're naming, right? Can we exist with one another? Can we be good people in this world? Because just for the sake of being a good person, not because it's going to solidify your entrance into the pearly white gates or anything like that. And so I think you dig it. I think it, you'd really, I, I'm gonna, it. I'm gonna, I'll pull it back out. Um, I've been pretty, I haven't been great about reading. I got stuck on, um, I got stuck on the second half of stillness is the way. Um, I, I re-listened to that like four times. I did not like the beginning of it, but I loved the second half of it. Um, I got stuck on, um, What's Michael Singer's book? Uh, you know the oh the untethered soul mm-hmm. and the surrender experiment. I got stuck on those. I'm such an addict that like when <laughs> I find something that like really really resonates with me, 
I just, I love walking and just listening and walking and listening. And I love to this day, I mean, I love walking early in the morning and I love saying out loud and I was taught this, I didn't come up with this, but I love just saying like, God, thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you, God, for the clean water I get to bathe with, because I know that half the world doesn't have clean water to bathe with. And thank you, God, for all of these opportunities. I love to start the day out like that because it just puts me into an attitude of gratitude. And it, and it really, in my experience, it's like the more I have an attitude of gratitude, I seem to attract abundance and attract good things into my life. And it, it doesn't matter if shitty things are going on in my life because there's big, big challenges. I mean, when you own a company with 350, 400 employees, there's gonna be challenges every day. I mean, we had some, we had some shit go on last week where I got called from one of the women who runs the company and she's like, um, okay, we've got a situation, blah, blah. I'm like, oh God, you know, here we go. Just full PTSD. Like my heart starts racing. Right. I'm like, I'm like, well, you know, let me just start out with, you know, we had one of our employees got hepatitis A and I'm like, okay. And she's like, well, it's not okay because when he went to the hospital, somebody at the hospital sold the story to the press and then the press called the health department. And now they're, you know, saying on all the different news channels that, you know, possible outbreak of hepatitis A at Sun Life Organics. And I'm like, wait, hepatitis A? Like I had hepatitis A when I was a sophomore. I went down to spring break and was doing whatever spring breakers do, you know, unshowered and drunk and filthy and God knows what. And I'm like, I so while I'm on the phone there, I Google it. And the first thing that pops up is hepatitis A, sexually transmitted disease often passed or, or contracted through oral or anal. And I just started laughing. And she's like, wait, what are you laughing about? And I'm like, well, Unless, unless we're I, having orgies at yes, <laughs> yes, that's what I said. Like, unless I'm mistaken, like, wouldn't it be virtually impossible for someone to get hepatitis A from someone who has it unless they're engaging in anal or oral or whatever? And she's like, well, I did ask the health department that. And they said that maybe if a person went to the bathroom and like got some feces on their hand and then touched the food. And I'm like, I know, but everyone wears gloves. I'm fairly confident no one's going into the bathroom wearing their gloves. That's never happened in 11 years. And I'm also very confident, 100% confident, that when they come out of the bathroom, they have to wash their hands in the bathroom. And when they come out of the bathroom, they have to wash their hands again. That's why we have two hand sinks in every store. And after they wash their hands, they got to put gloves on. So there's like zero chance. However, because of the pandemic and because of clickbait and because of how, you know, wound up and crazy people are because we've been caged like animals for the last two and a half years. And let's be honest, because the news wants to sell ad space, they made it seem like it was almost like an Ebola outbreak at Sun Life Organics and people are in peril and whatever. And I got off the phone and then of course people started texting me and emailing me, you know, oh, this new station said this and this radio station said that. And after like the 10th time, I started crying because I'm like, this is not fair. 
This is not okay. How many waitresses or waiters have herpes? How many waiters or waitresses have HIV? Like number one, what happened to the HIPAA laws, right? right? How are they giving out medical information about somebody? And, and, and so should we go to every restaurant and find out everybody that has TB, everybody that has uh, hepatitis A, B, or C, everybody that has HIV or AIDS, everybody that has herpes, should we go and blast that out for every food establishment that has barely, barely fucking survived after everything we went through? Tens of thousands of restaurants and food service places went out of business during this pandemic because we overreacted and maybe rightfully so. I don't know. But I still don't understand why liquor stores were essential, but, you know, restaurants or churches weren't essential. And I don't want to get into, you know, political whatever, but, but the fact that that happened, it like pulled the rug out from under my feet. And I started feeling like claustrophobic. I started feeling panicky. I was told by our lawyers and by our PR people, like, you cannot say anything. Because you're, you know, chatty Kathy and you're going to get defensive <laughs> and you can't go saying anal and oral and like, just shut the fuck up. No one cares. The, by the way, nothing happened with the business. All of the stores were just as busy as they always were, if not even busier. But sometimes you get punched below the belt and it hurts so bad and you can't defend yourself and by the second day, I stopped myself from, from feeling sorry for myself. I stopped myself from being a victim. And I thought, no, go back to the basics. Did you talk to God about this? Did you thank God for the clean water? Did you thank God for the roof over your head? And sure enough, I went and I did my little, you know, out loud even. If you do it out loud, it's even more powerful. You'll, your neighbors will think you're completely fucking insane and you're talking to yourself. But just out loud, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for the clean water. Thank you for the food I get to eat. Thank you for these, uh, these amazing you know, opportunities for this amazing existence. And sure enough, I was able to pop myself out of that super low despair and go back to being generally optimistic and, and hopeful for the future, not just for my business, but for, for this country, for, for the world. Yeah. How powerful that your, your lawyer or PR manager was able to say, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because I think we get so caught up in that all the time, right? Yeah. What do I look like? How much engagement did my post get? What is the person at the coffee shop thinking about the fact that I didn't wash my hair before I came in here? Whatever right. it is. Right. And one of the most powerful reframes for me is like, damn, if that's what's going through my head, that's got to be what's going through that guy's head and that girl's head yes. and that person's head. They don't have time to notice all the shit that I think is wrong with me right now. Yeah. And the news cycle is quick. The news cycle now, it used to be 10, 15 years ago when something happened, people would talk about it for three months at a time. People talk about shit for three days now and it's over. It's done. You know, I doubt tomorrow or the next day we're going to be talking about whether Will Smith was right, you know, to hit Chris Rock or not. But my God, for 72 hours, I was like texting Every meme, I knew, like, everything. You know, How dare he do that? And violence is never okay. And, you know, Chris Rock is such a great guy and blah, blah, blah. Listen, had I grown up like Will Smith and had I gone through everything Will Smith has gone through, I'd behave like Will Smith. Mm. And had I grown up like Chris Rock and went through everything Chris Rock went through, 
I'd behave like Chris Rock. So yes, of course, I think Chris Rock behaved like an absolute gentleman and, and looked like a stud, just putting his hands behind his back and, and, you know, doing what Jesus said, which was when someone hits you, you know, just turn, you know, turn the other cheek around misquoting, but you know what I mean? Like Chris Rock could have flipped the fuck out. Chris Rock could have sued him. Chris Rock could have done a lot of things. And um, at the, at the end of the day, again, like when we first started talking about, I think there's probably multiple truths. Totally. There's probably multiple truths. So it's best for me to stay out of those convictions and go, Will Smith's being a scumbag or, you know, I know OJ did it, right? Do I? Do I know OJ did it? Do any of us know? I think the only person who may know if he did or he didn't, I mean, I think there's a 99% chance he did it, but who the fuck am I to say I know? Convictions are so dangerous and, and there are oftentimes many truths and I try to stay in that neutral middle ground. One of the things that I think the Chris Rock and Will Smith and even OJ, um, all of those scenarios bring to mind is, and I know I brought them up earlier, but um, in Gabor Mate's newest documentary, I want to say it's called... Um, the wisdom of trauma. I think that's what it's called. I'm trying not to do this documentary. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm amazing with documentaries. I'm not good at reading books. I'm yeah. great at buying books, but I'm really good at documentaries. <laughs> yeah. I got to show you all. Yeah. What's going on. I have all wow. my books that just kind of sit there. Will you, will you text it to me? Will you text the yeah. documentary? Cause I keep hearing all these people talking about this guy and I keep meaning to like investigate further, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just like, at the end of the day, I make smoothies. <laughs> you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. Like I go to Sun Life every day and I have an acai bowl and I talk to a lot of cool people and um, I like to work out and just keep my life super simple, but I do want to expand my mind some. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm super curious about his work. Yeah. I'll send it your way. His work was definitely the first um, I read his book in realm of hungry ghosts when I was in undergrad and I was raised by a single mother addict alcoholic. Mm. Um, thankfully dad was in the picture. They were just separated and he did as, you know, as best he could with what he had. And sometimes that's just doesn't, doesn't fare well, but, um, it wasn't until I read his book that I really understood the shame and the stories and the trauma that people sustain living in that lifestyle. Right. And so I was able for so long, I had taken it on, right. Being the child of getting the narrative, I'm getting sober for you. You deserve a sober mom. And then with each relapse, eight-year-old Lindsay or 10-year-old Lindsay or 15-year-old Lindsay, it's like, damn, if you're doing this for me, what about me? Isn't good enough for you to do it. And it was Gabor Mate's work that finally changed that narrative for me. And in this latest documentary, what he goes on to say is if we could stop looking at people and saying, what's wrong with you and instead ask what happened to you, Mm. the amount of compassion and empathy that we can have for other people around us and curiosity, yeah, we wouldn't have these, we wouldn't have to have those ultimate truths, right? I know that Chris Rock was right and Will was wrong or this or that. It was like, no, I can get curious about what happened that made you feel as though you needed to react in that way? Right. And, and if I, you know, and if I 
had a, a girlfriend, or in his case, a wife, who had gone out and slept with a bunch of other men, because um, that that's public. I didn't, you know, I'm not like telling any secrets here, but I mean, it's public knowledge that, you know, Jada had had all of these affairs and for a while she felt like they had an open relationship or whatever. As a man, um, as an insecure man, I can't imagine walking around with that shadow hanging over me, mm. you know? I, I, I can't, ma- I don't know what that's like. I don't know how that would affect me in terms of maybe my whole life then would be coming about trying to please her and win her p- approval. And so you notice he's laughing when the joke is told, but when he looks over and he sees the reaction on her face, he jumps up and does his best attempt of, of chivalry. Um, unfortunately, it was in front of a billion people. Unfortunately, it was followed by obscenities. And unfortunately, in a time where there's so much violence going on and you have the first Academy Awards where black and brown people and, and, and queer people and, um, you know, different genders or whatever are finally recognized, he selfishly made it all about him. You know, that's the part that's heartbreaking. I don't, I don't think he's an evil person. I've met him multiple times. I, well, I've met both of them together. I did yoga with them a couple of times. I know their kids really, really well. They're amazing parents. And I know 1000%, even though I'm not like buddies with him, if he could do it all over again, he wouldn't have done it. So maybe let's just pump the brakes with the judgment because we don't know, we don't know what it's like to try and fill those shoes. Totally. So, Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that anymore. And to loop it back to what you said earlier, look at what the picture of masculinity has been in Hollywood for years. For sure. And what are, you know, even you having that somatic experience and not wanting to cry on the table in front of this woman, right? Right. Where it's her job to like find those things, right? True. Yeah, it's sad. That's that's silly. That's I mean, I'm pretty surface level and shallow and pretentious. And so I'm bringing my own bag of mixed goods to the table there. But yes, in general, I think most men would be embarrassed to cry in front of other people. And, you know, is it wrong for me to mention that she's very pretty? Maybe, but it's, it's true. You know, she's a, she's a beautiful woman and I want her to like me, not like me. She's married. I know her husband. I love her. I'm in a committed monogamous relationship. Still doesn't mean I don't want other women to like me. Right. Or just other people, right? You spent a ton of your life feeling the what in your reality, in your truth in that moment was rejection or abandonment yeah. or any of these things. Yeah. That desire to be liked, you talked about people pleasing in the beginning. Yeah. I just did, you know, a big kind of post and talk about this that it's like people pleasing is not about the other person. All right. too often we want to bring ourselves to the table as the helpful friend or the yes guy or the this or the that and it's like that has nothing to do with helping the other person that has to do with like maintaining your perception of me right whether I want you to think that I am lovable or worthy or any of these different things yeah what are we really sacrificing at that point who are we really pleasing at that point right yeah that's heavy I didn't yeah I like how you broke that down Thanks. Yeah. Well, Khalil, this has been awesome. I feel like we could just keep riffing and going forever and ever and ever. For days. Wait, so you're in Denver now. Okay. Will you, will you, um, will you come to Austin at some point? 
yeah, I get out to Austin pretty frequently. Um, got a bunch of friends out there. So yeah, I get out there okay. pretty, pretty often. We'll definitely have to connect next time I am. Well, please, um, please obviously, um, let me know when you're coming. I, I, I can't wait to treat you to the best acai you ever had in your life. Um, and I don't say that lightly because I've been all over the world and we actually make our own acai, um, in a commissary in Valencia. Um, one of the challenges with acai is it's loaded with sugar. You know, right. the acai is a way that everyone makes the bowls out of is yes, it's acai, which is amazing for you. And yes, it might be organic, but it's just straight sugar and sugar is really not great for you. Um, so we sweeten ours with coconut palm crystals, which is why it kind of has this ugly brownish tint to it. So our acai does not look pretty and it, to be honest, it doesn't taste as good. Um, but it's not sugar, right? <laughs> right? But it's really, really good for you. And then we have this amazing, um, it's sweet with monk fruit, but it's like Nutella. Mm. And we have this bowl called the Buddha bowl. And so we put this Nutella on top of the acai with this paleo granola that we also make ourselves, which is just gluten-free, obviously, and organic, obviously, but just amazing. And then we use wild, um, fresh, organic blueberries, not the nasty little frozen ones, but the big, plump, beautiful, wild blueberries. So like when that tartness of the blueberries mixes with the natural sweetness of the acai sweet with the coconut palm crystals. And then you've got the chocolate. It's basically like robbing a bank and getting away with it. Because <laughs> it tastes fucking amazing and it's good for you. So when you come, I'm going to treat you um, and your partner. And if any of your listeners um, come to a Sunlight Organics and you see me um, and I'm often at, well, I'm at Sunlight Organics every day. Um, but if you see me, please grab me and please let, let me treat you. And please don't see me and then DM me that night and say, I didn't want to interrupt because you're in the middle of talking. As you can tell, I never stop talking. <laughs> I am always talking to somebody. So if you see me interrupt, let me treat you. Just say, you know, I heard you on Get Psyched. That's the name of your podcast, right? Yeah, I heard you on Get Psyched with Lindsay. And I just want to introduce myself and I will treat you to whatever you want. Oh, Khalil, thank you so much. Other than snagging you in person at Sun Life Organics, are there any other ways that people can get connected or watch the journey? You know, Instagram, because there's nothing better yet. Um, and my Instagram is like half gross, shallow, pretentious, humble, bragging, desperately seeking likes and attention. And then if you actually read the captions or you actually look at some of the other posts, it's kind of half really like I'm, I'm on the path. I'm seeking, I'm looking for connection. I'm looking to spread the message of hope. My little Instagram stories are all about becoming 1% better every day because somebody like me that doesn't have willpower and doesn't have strength and doesn't have talent to be able to create this life beyond my wildest dreams. The way I did that was one day at a time. And the way I did that was 1% each day. And it sounds super simple, but what ends up happening is if you become 1% better every day, not only are you 300 something percent better by the end of the year, but because of compounding, it's actually much, much more than that. And the fact that I've been doing that come June 18th will be 19 years. My life is like 10,000% better than it was when I was 
getting fucked up and being a, a liability to society. So now I get to give back a little. I get to be in shape and lift my weights and be happy. And so if you want to join me on that journey, please follow me at Khalil Rafati. And um, that's about it. Epic. Thanks so much, Khalil. Of course. Thank you, Lindsay.